Praise the Lord. If you would turn in your Bibles, I'm just going to get right to the message this morning. I uh, had hoped to have my PowerPoint starting this morning and going over my trip, but I had my family's Christmas last night, and uh, I just didn't want to rush my PowerPoint, so next week I'll start on that. Uh, I can't help but um, preach in my messages my trip, so there will be a lot of it in my message probably too. But next week I'll probably... I hope I have it started next week where I can start going over my trip a little bit and and uh, teaching you because everything that I did on the trip was not a tourist trip to Israel. It was a trip to inform the church. And so I want to take my time and make sure I teach all the things that they wanted us to come back. And it's very important stuff because um, we're blessed based on the information I'm bringing back. You know, if we're a supporter of Israel, we're a lover of Israel, we know what God is doing through Israel, and we understand what's happening in the last days. Uh, Israel is our prophetic calendar. And so I want to make sure I take my time and teach it well and teach it right, make sure everybody understands and sees. And and, uh, God put something in me that I want to make sure I'm very faithful to deliver. Um, So if you would turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. It says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, this is connecting what he previously said to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Amen? Whoever follows me will never, that means never, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you to think about that phrase, the light of life, and they will never walk in darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need you to anoint me with your spirit, Lord. Father, I pray that you would flow through me, Lord, just merely a vessel, Lord. Lord, I need your anointing, Lord. I need your spirit, Lord God. I need you to change hearts, prepare hearts. Lord, cause hearts to hear from you, Lord, not me. Bless this word, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The light of the world. Jesus um, Jesus has a real sense of timing whenever he um, teaches. How many have ever noticed that? Jesus is very good at, uh, for instance, using the things that are around him. And uh, as I began to go around the Holy Land, I, I noticed this in a lot of places. It's very unique, a lot of the places that he speaks. For instance, uh, when he's talking... Uh, to them about hurting my little ones. He says, it's better for you not to harm the little ones. Because if you do, it would be better for you to have one of these stones put around your neck and thrown into the sea. And when you look at where he said that, there was a, uh, uh, th- there was a place where they were grinding grain there. And so these giant 
grinding stones are right there and the Sea of Galilee is right there. Jesus is using something that is there to explain what he's talking about. And this particular passage, when he says, I'm the light of the world, you'd never have to walk in the darkness, in the darkness, and this will be the light of your life. Jesus again is making maybe a, a more profound statement than we even realize. Sometimes we don't appreciate the atmosphere in which he's saying these statements. And when he says it, what's happening around him when he makes these statements? It's pretty bold what he's saying here. So if you go early in the, in the chapter here, and you begin to look at John chapter 8, verse 1, I'm sorry. Actually, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After that, this, Jesus went in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, it's a very significant statement here, it's the Feast of Tabernacles that's about to happen, was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see your miracles that you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You hear what they're saying? The Feast of Tabernacles is coming, and this is one of the three pilgrimages that the Jews take to Jerusalem. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. So everybody is going to assemble in Jerusalem. There's going to be tens of hundreds of thousands of people all over the city. And his brothers are saying that would be a great time to do these miracles you're doing. But they still didn't believe in him. How many see that? They, His own brothers still didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So they said you should go and do things publicly and quit doing things in secret. But how many know Jesus knew the timing of the Lord? In fact, he said to his brothers a little later here, he says, you guys would just do it any time, but I understand the timing of the Lord. And so secretly, his brothers went on and went to the the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And he secretly went to Jerusalem. It says he kind of uh, was picking the moment that God had reserved for him to show up. And so we really miss a lot in this verse. Did you notice his brothers were saying, show yourself to the world? And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And you say, man, well, how is he the light of the world when he's just in Jerusalem here? Maybe he's the light of Israel. Maybe he's the light of that ceremony that they were having there. But how is he the light of the world? And Jesus began to unfold this. And so Jesus, um, if you don't understand the Feast of Tabernacles, if you don't understand this particular pilgrimage, I would venture to guess most people this would be their favorite one. This would be the one that would be the most enjoyable. And you say, well, man, I've never thought about it. So I'm going to try to take the technical, um, the technical language and the technical ceremonies 
that are involved in this feast and just give you a feel of what it would be like to celebrate this in his day. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, Passover is the celebration of the lamb that was being slain uh, and the doorposts being covered with blood and them being delivered from Egypt. How many are following me? So the first pilgrimage feast is we're celebrating and commemorating the death of a lamb that saved each of our families and we were delivered from Egypt by the hand of God. So Passover is celebrating the Passover feast and it's a very solemn occasion. You know, it's the occasion where Jesus Christ himself became the Lamb of God to fulfill the Passover. Uh, then we have Pentecost and the feast of Pentecost is where they're coming out of Egypt and now they're going to a place on Sinai where God is delivering his law. They're at the mountain and God is revealing himself and God's revealing himself and he's, and he's creating a nation, uh, out of a group of slaves and delivers his law and it was fulfilled because God said that his people, um, would, would be a people that would be given the spirit of God one day. And so on Pentecost, the giving of the law, that's the day where the Holy Spirit descends and they're baptized and the Holy Spirit um, falls upon the church. Then we have this third one. You say, well, man, how can they be? How, how would I enjoy the third one more than that one? And it's because we don't give a whole lot of attention to the feast um, that comes after that, the third pilgrimage. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is the celebration of the 40 days in the wilderness. So 40 days, they are 40 days, 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. So the 40-year period is commemorated by the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I want you to get a feel for this thing. They basically lived in temporary structures for 40 years. And so they wandered around in the wilderness and God took care of them. God gave them everything they needed. They didn't uh, have a standard community where they worked nine to five jobs and had industries and had all these things. All they had was a God in heaven that loved them more than any nation in the world. He fed them. He gave them water. He, he gave them shelter. Their clothes didn't even wear out. And God says, I want you to have a solemn assembly all the way back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. There needs to be a solemn assembly where every person in this small little nation, every person's going to come to Jerusalem and we're going to celebrate how I took care of you. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to come to Jerusalem and everybody's going to stay in basically tents. And it's like just one big camp out. So everybody's building tents out of materials that are symbolic of them being in the wilderness. And for seven days, they're going to celebrate how God took care of them and how God loved them and how God was their provision, how God provided. And oh, by the way, there's two very specific things they also want to celebrate. And that, that is that God led them and guided them all through the wilderness. And that was the cloud by day and the, and the, and the fire by night. And so they want to remember that we were not forsaken. God loved us like He never has loved another nation before. And I want the whole nation, I want you to imagine this. And you don't get a feel for this. Maybe Christmas is the only time we get a feel for this where everything shuts down and you actually celebrate something solemn. 
But in Jerusalem, whenever there is a Sabbath, all the freeways are covered with traffic, and it's a very big, very busy city. Sabbath comes, everything shuts down. Everything shuts down, it's just, man, it's like a ghost town. What's going on in Jerusalem? What's happening here? Shabbat. It's Sabbath. Everybody stops and they celebrate this. Well, this celebration is even more different than that. This celebration, the entire nation is making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that God loved them, God cared for them, God provided for them, God led them by His Spirit. And they begin to celebrate this. And so Jesus is waiting for just the right moment to show up at this feast. Can't you see it? Can't you see Jesus saying, God, what is the perfect time? And, 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 and I can just see God showing him this is the time. So he makes two statements here. There's two things that happen to celebrate God's provision and the fact that God led them by a fire. One is, every day they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would take water and draw it and they would ceremonially walk to the altar of offering and they would pour the water on there and it symbolized that God gave us water in the middle of a desert. You didn't hear what I said. See, you're just listening and not even paying attention. God followed them around the desert. See, we don't understand desert. We think, uh, you know, we live in a desert when it's 100 degrees and it's the summer. We think, oh, give me water. I've got tap water everywhere I turn around, but I'm dying here in this desert of Evansville or Henderson or wherever you live. But they lived, they were in a real desert. Water wasn't on the tap. You know, they didn't have a way to get water for that many people. And it says that there was a rock that literally followed them around. <laughs> okay. I don't know how this happens. But somehow they knew that that rock was God Himself. They knew that that was a rock that they would never go thirsty because it followed them everywhere. Paul begins to teach in the New Testament and says, Jesus was that rock. You say Jesus was in the Old Testament? We say, what? I thought He was born in Bethlehem. All through the Old Testament you see uh, a, a figure that is the Messiah, they called him um, a Messiophany, the Jews do, because they don't believe in Christ or Jesus as the Messiah. They say the Messiah, whoever he is, we don't know, but he followed us around in the wilderness. So they began to draw this water every day and they would pour it out and it was symbolic that we never thirsted, that he took care of us, he provided for us. We didn't have to worry. So you didn't hear me again. We don't have to worry. We don't have to have anxiety. You mean nothing's going to ever come across my path that's going to make me worried? Nothing's going to come across my path that's going to make me have anxiety? There's nothing that's going to break my peace? No, there will be things. But I'm just saying you don't have to. Because you have somebody that loves you and cares about you and your future is brighter than anybody on this earth. You can't find a king on this earth that has a better future than you have. You say, well, man, it don't look that bright. I'm sick and I'll never get well and my life is almost over. 
No, your life's just about to begin. See, we don't see eternity because sometimes we just see what's right in front of us. And God wants us to live with the knowledge that eternity is right around the corner and He'll dry every tear, every sickness will be gone, all of our provision will be provided. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to be shouting. There's somebody in here that's been working their whole life that never got this message I'm preaching. I'm not going to work again. Well, it's not just me. Don't get excited about me. You're not going to work again. We have a God that provides in such a way that when He restores things to the way they were supposed to be, see, we don't know what Adam did. Adam did such a bad thing and our, and, and, and the human race did such a bad thing. We gave up something that we've never been able to get back until God restores it. And I'm ready, church. I want to live in that reality that, man, all the sickness is almost gone. All the worry is almost gone. All the anxiety is almost gone. Just a little while longer, and I'll be there. They say, oh, dear Lord, I'm going to die soon. Man, life's so bad, I'm going to die soon, and it's been an awful life, and I had a hard childhood, middle age wasn't much better, older I got a lot of pains. It's almost over. We should be excited. We should be happy. We should be saying, it's almost, you mean it's almost over? You mean I'm almost in his presence? You mean it's almost, the curse is almost reversed? Church, if we've got Jesus Christ living in us, we know about this eternal living water. We should never thirst again. We've got a God that is going to provide for us like that. It's a picture of the messianic age that we're about to enter into. And so Jesus stands up and it says there in the scripture that I read that the second time he spoke, he said, I'm the light of the world. But what did he say the first time? You see it in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, this is day eight, seven days of camping out. How many like camping out? How many think it would be cool if all of us got together for seven days pitch these tents and we all in the community just worshiped and loved God and celebrated once a year, all of our families, and we all camped out. Isn't this the coolest holiday? In fact, I was a little jealous of Shabbat in Jerusalem. Every Friday, everybody's forced to shut everything down and the families are forced to be together. Shabbat is broken if you leave your home or you go too far away from your home. Everybody's forced to be together. The father sits at the head of the table and women, guess what he does first? His wife stands up and he begins to honor her for everything she's done for that family for that week and blesses her. How many think that's awesome? We just stop there. Then he calls the children up one by one and begins to bless each of the children for the gift they are to that family. How many think we could stop there? Then they eat a little food. And then he stands up, stops after the first course, and begins to ask people, say, hey, share this, share that, share this. And you're encouraged to bring strangers into your home. I mean, I think this would be awesome. Once a week, everything shuts down. Everybody has to be with their family. They bless their wife. They bless their kids. They eat. You say, well, they probably don't eat much. It's probably like a cracker and a little bit of juice. Right? They stop. They begin to ask everybody to share. Then you eat again. The next course comes. And then 
he stops after that course. They begin to share some more, begin to ask people to share. They go around the table. And then, oh my goodness, more is coming. They're bringing more food. And then you share a little bit more, stops, and here comes more food. <laughs> God's actually got some pretty great things uh, that he set aside for us as families. But this one is awesome. Seven days every year, right when the harvest is done and everybody's beginning to rest from the harvest, we're going to come together and we're all going to camp out for seven days. Now here's the eighth day. The eighth day is a solemn day to begin to focus on God and what He did for us when He took care of us and loved us. I mean, I think that'd be great. That's awesome. And so Jesus says on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus finally found His timing here. Here's where I'm going to come, the last day. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now what are they thinking? He's saying he's the rock that was in the will. I'm not, not the rock that's in the movies. Okay, he doesn't have a little eyebrow thing he does here at this point. Okay, this is, you know, remember this is a long time ago. All right. Sometimes we all only know the rock of today, not the rock of yesterday. But I'm introducing you to the other rock. Some of you young people will get that. The older ones are saying, well, who's he talking about? <laughs> but, he said, if anybody is thirsty, come and drink. He's saying, I'm the Messiah that was in the wilderness, and they never had to thirst. They never were hungry. They were taken care of. The one you're celebrating for seven days, he just walked in the house. I'm the Messiah. So his timing was in secret. I'm going to come in, and right when they're pouring that water out, and, and, and thanking God for the provision and providing and, and being with them in the wilderness and being their God and, and, and never having to thirst. He's going to walk in and he's going to say, if anybody here... Now remember, when he's saying this, there's probably tens of thousands of people. This is a courtyard. This is the, the courtyard of the women. All right? And this is the courtyard of the women where there are like 13 different booths there. Like the first booth might be pay my temple tax. Second booth might be buy two pigeons to, in order to sacrifice. The third booth, each of the booths had a specific purpose. And there are tens of thousands of people in this crowded booth. They're ceremonially pouring the water out. It's packed with people. All right, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this courtyard. You say, well, how is that possible? Church, I'm telling you, a lot of you are going to see this with me, but this temple mount is massive. I mean, it's massive. It's elevated on a hill, and it's just it takes your breath away. It's beautiful. And this thing is packed full of people, but that's not the only thing that's there. I'm going to tell you what else is there that's amazing. But right in the middle of all these people, very loudly Jesus said, Is anybody here thirsty? And I want you to see these tens of thousands of people Hearing what he's saying and recognizing that we're at a feast celebrating the children of Israel being watered in the desert. What he's saying is, trust in me and you'll never thirst again. Some of you are still thirsty. You say, why am I still thirsty? Because I think I need more money in order to be happy. 
I think I need more respect to be happy. I think I need all these things in life to be happy. Everything's got to be perfect. I'm not happy. I've got to have an education or I'm not happy. I've got to have my wallet full, my bank account full, or I'm not happy. And he's saying, quit being thirsty. He's saying, you have everything you need if you have me. If you're on your way to heaven, you got everything you need. Church, be happy, be be content, love me. Trust me, look forward to me, have hope in me. And because we don't have that, we're always thirsty for more. And you'll never be filled. And Jesus is saying, anybody here thirsty? And then he goes on and he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, what is he talking about? This man speaks in parables, mysteries we can't understand. Fortunately, he explained himself. Whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So, when did the disciples receive streams of living water flowing from within? It says, up to that time, the Spirit, capital S, had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. You think? (laughs) But do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, all of this is symbolism. All of this in the wilderness, all of this water that followed them around is the spirit that I'm going to give to my children and rivers are going to flow and they'll never be thirsty again. Something that we're to receive. Then the other great symbol, and this one's the second thing that he said was the verse I read this morning. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll have it. I can possess the light of life. He says, he's the light of the world, but he says, I will possess it. The light of the world. Man, what is he talking about? And see, this particular feast, another thing that they did was, and this one's really hard to gather. You you follow a lot of different historians on this. And you'll read one and he'll say there were two massive lights that they put. Remember the court of the women, um, there's court of the Gentiles, court of the women, and it's all open. There's no roof above it. And it's a city on a hill and it stands out from the whole city and it's just elevated. And it's open. And historians say there were two lamps that were put there for this feast and they were 75 foot tall. And they were on the left and the right side of the altar where they're pouring the water. So where do you think Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, he's standing right there where they're pouring the water out and he's looking at the two 75-foot lamps. And then you read another historian from another period and they say there were three lamps. So there were two lamps for sure. And they symbolized the guidance of God through the wilderness. And then at some point, they put a third one there in the middle. Because they were very, um, 
Influenced by Zechariah's writings and several of the prophets, Isaiah, and they all talked about this light, the true light, and his name was Messiah. And so they put a third one up and they said the third one symbolizes the true light, which is the Messiah who will come. Well, guess what? The true light was standing below the third candelabra, 35 feet high, that symbolized himself. And so the timing is impeccable, wouldn't you say? He shows up on the eighth day when they're pouring the water out and they're, and they're, and these lights are, are lit. And you say, well, what is the purpose of the light? Well, listen to some of the prophets. It says, Zechariah says, after Zechariah gives a prophecy about the enemies of God being consumed by fire. This is uh, Zechariah chapter 14. He says that whatever they're consumed with in this last battle, their eyes literally melt out of their head and their skin off of their, their flesh, off of their bone before they even hit the ground. There's so much heat from whatever this battle is. Well, it says the survivors at the very end will go into a messianic age And it says, and year after year, they will go up and they will worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14, 16. So one thing we know in the Messianic age is year after year, there's one thing that the whole world is going to celebrate. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. So every year, all the nations, in fact, it says all the nations will come to Jerusalem, not just Israel, It says in the Messianic age, all the nations will go to Israel and they'll all celebrate this. We're all going to be camping out in Jerusalem every year in the Messianic age. And something interesting begins to happen. Isaiah 60.19 says, No longer will you have the sun to light the day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Well, man, something's changing here. What's Isaiah talking about? How is the city no longer going to need light, and is no longer going to need a sun, no longer going to need a moon? Jerusalem, at some point in the future, the prophet is clearly saying that there will need no, need no need to be sun or moon. I just stuttered really bad. I got so excited, I just broke into a stutter. But there's going to come a day, and these prophecies are all beginning to converge. We're going to celebrate tabernacles in Jerusalem every year, and all the nations of the world will camp out there and celebrate God's provision. The city is no longer, we're not going to have to light these 75-foot lights anymore, and that Messiah in the middle represents the one that's going to light the entire city. And then they go on, Zechariah 14, 5 to 7. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. How many are excited about the day when you don't go outside and have the cold, frosty darkness? All right. Verse 7, it says, it will be a unique day. Yeah, you think? A day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. Well, what? Oh, and then Revelation. I can't I can forget this one. Does it remind you of something in Revelation? 
It says there's going to come a day, Revelation 21, 23, when the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Revelation 22, 5, it repeats it just in case we missed it, because we miss things, right? Say, well, I don't know if 21's right. Well, here's 22. There will be no more night. There will not be, there will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. How many know that the sun and the moon were a created thing that God made in the beginning, but he's going to do away with in the future? And so what they were trying to do at the Feast of Tabernacles, stay with me on this. This is good stuff. The Feast of Tabernacles, they were trying to simulate that day when the city needs no light. Because then you begin to look at history. It was two 75-foot lamps. Then it was three to represent the Messiah. Then all of a sudden you read the historical accounts and they're saying there's thousands of lights on there. Thousands of lights on the Temple Mount and you're looking at me like I'm an alien. But I've seen people with lights. I've seen people at Christmas. Well, one string of lights looks good, but the only thing is better is about 80. Right? Don't we get carried away with lights? I mean, it's like we put one on and we think we created the universe and the sun and the light and the moon, right? And we look at it and we're like, wow, I created that. And then all of a sudden we put another one on and we're like, wow, my neighbor has about 10 though, so I'm going to put up 20. And then all of a sudden we have a fantasy of lights in our yard, right? Hallelujah. And there's something. See, we, we look at Christmas and we say, man, I don't know what pagan thing that came from, you know. So I don't know if I should like those lights or not, but we love them. Don't we? We love them. And this city was getting carried away with their lights. In fact, it said the light was so bright on that festival, there was no night in these eight days. There was no night. They let them, they, in fact, uh, some say they, they, they stayed lit all day. Some say they just lit them at night when it got dark. But they were not allowed to have nighttime. So the entire city, and if you see this city, the Bible says that God loves us and covers us like the mountains cover Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains and it's like nestled in a little hug of mountains. And it's right there and it's elevated. And they say the, the, the lights were so bright in that city, and this is no easy thing because it's a massive city. They say there were shadows on, on the Mount of Olives because it was so bright. And the city just shone like a lamp, the whole city. And everybody around, even as far as Bethlehem and all these communities around, just imagine these pilgrimages, these pilgrims walking in this city. They're all camping out and the city is just lit up, and it doesn't go out at all. Church, he's trying to show us through the tabernacles what the city is going to be like for eternity. And Jesus has the perfect timing. He walks in on the last day when the light's being extinguished. He walks in because we can't keep these things burning all the time. You know how hard it would be to have that much light? We're carried away right now, but we can't keep doing this. And Jesus walks in when they're extinguishing the lights and it becomes complete darkness now. Man, it was so, it was so exciting when it was all bright. 
You may have ever had somewhere that was bright and just action and all of a sudden the lights go out. It's like it's dead now. And Jesus walks in on that great day and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. says he's the light of the world. You know, we're just trying to light up this city. But he comes in and says he's the light of the entire world. Did you catch that? I'm not just the one that lights this city for eternity. I light the whole world. And so Jesus comes in and makes this proclamation, and that's why they're going around saying he must be a prophet. He goes, right when the lights are extinguished, Jesus stands there and says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. This one has to burn out, but I'll never burn out. I'll never be extinguished. And you know, the enemy has tried to extinguish that light. Some of you have had the light of God that's been burnt in your heart. And you say, what's the light of God? It's that born-again experience that says, God, I want you. I love you. You're the Lord of my life. And all of a sudden, there's that light. You say, well, man, what makes the light bright? He talked about the Spirit flowing inside of you, stoking it. And how many know a fire needs material? A fire needs a wick. fire needs something to burn. And we're saying, God, I want you to have my life. Take all of me, Lord. Take all of me. Lord, I want revival in my life. Take all of me. And the more you give God, the stronger you burn. And the Bible says in John 1, 5, that the light came into the world and the enemy was couldn't comprehend it. If you look at that word, it means he couldn't extinguish it. And some of you, you have just a little ember left. And the enemy's trying to extinguish it. And man, if I had that little fire in your heart and I had that little ember left, you know what I would do? I would say, get me some materials. What kind you want? Wet. I don't want wet materials. I can't start a fire. But you got a little bit left. You were on fire for God at one time, and all I see is a little flicker. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to some of you today. And I'm fanning it, and the Holy Spirit's through preaching, through the Word, through the conviction of the Holy Ghost in your life. He's saying, and I'm saying, man, give me some dry material. What's a dry material? It's all those things you tried to quench your thirst with. All that love of money. Man, but God, my neighbor has so much more than me. I don't deserve this. I'm mad, God, because you didn't bless me with finances. You know, if you would have blessed me with finances, I would have won the world. No, you wouldn't. You would have bought more things, and you would have had more things to burn. Hallelujah. So God's saying... Give me that love for money. Give me that selfish ambition. You say, but God, that's what quenches my thirst. Your thirst still isn't quenched. You still want more. You still need more. It still needs to be fed. And God's saying, give me that selfish ambition and put it on here. Why? Because you have a bright future and your future is not the things you're seeing in this world. But God, I want the things of the world. That's how I know you're blessing me. God's saying, no, that's how I get your fire stoked up. Give me all your dreams. You say, dreams? Man, that's the American 
the American ideal, man, dreams. We live on temporary dreams. That's what we are as Americans. I'm dreaming of glory for myself. I'm dreaming of honor for myself. I'm dreaming of respect from the people around me. And God says, you know what? That's good dry material. And that's never going anywhere. You know, you're not what you think you are. (laughs) A good thing. Sometimes the best blessing is we're not who we think we are. And and maybe we could be humbled. You know, let me tell you something. You're not the next John Wesley. Oh, man, that hurts because God told me I was the great reformer. Well, you know what? If you'll take that dry material and put it on this fire and humble yourself, you say, well, man, that's what you're saying is wrong, man. I'm special in the kingdom. No, I want to take all of my pride. I want to put it on this fire and I just want to be a part of the kingdom. And then God will do something. You say, you mean if God abases me, He's going to exalt me? Yeah, that's what He said. If I become the best servant, He'll make me the best leader? Yeah, that's what He said. If I do less great things, like wash people's feet, then He's going to make me greater? Yeah, that's what He said. Well, man, there goes all my plans. Guess I'm not the next John Wesley. I'm not the great reformer. Finally, God says, I can do something with you. Give me your life. Pour it on here. You mean I'm not the most intelligent person at studying the Bible? You mean I'm not impressing people with what I'm saying? No. Throw that on there. That's fire. That's material that's dry. It's not going anywhere. It's just going to leave you your whole life. (laughs) I'm not supposed to preach on these things, am I? That's all selfish ambition, church. When you walk in and you desire people to see you in your flowing robes. And I would wear my flowing shirt today. Do you want people to see you in your flowing robes like the Pharisees? They desired that people see them in their flowing robes. They desired for them to know how much they knew about the Bible. And God's saying, that's all material that I can stoke the fire with. I want humble people that are hungry for me. I want humble people that will reach out to people. I want people that can actually have a fire inside of them. And right now it's just, it's an ember. It's almost gone on some of you. God's saying, see the wind can only do so much. The wind will make it glow orange. It'll make it hot and it'll make it glow orange, but we need some material. We need something dry, something really, really, really dry. Find the driest thing in your life. You know, like uh, greed, ambition, hatred. Oh, hatred's a good one. Oh, yeah. Some of you have had that hatred for so long, it's dry as a bone. It's been in your heart for a long time, bitterness and anger, and God's saying, man, perfect. That's like the best material. You know, let's grab that and let's put that on that ember. You know, let's give up your bitterness. But 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 I got a right to be mad. You don't know how I was treated as a kid. Yeah, but I know it was like forty years ago. And you're you're still blaming forty years ago for what you're doing today. You're still taking out forty years ago on people that are around you that weren't there forty years ago. And God's saying, Man, good material. No, not my sermon. It's good too, but now that's material. Let's put it on there and let's make it burn. How long are you going to be offended in your life? Why don't we put that on and light that fire? So, so how Jesus comes in here, looks at all these lights and the whole city is lit up 
And he says, I am the light of the world. If you have me, you'll never walk in darkness. And Jesus was the only one that could reveal with his light who God is. And you say, well, man, Satan was so successful because he put the light out. He killed him on Calvary. The light was put out and he finally extinguished it. Jesus was the only one that could tell us. In fact, I wrote down here. He was the only one that could tell us. I know the way out of darkness. Nobody else knew the way. How many know that? Only one that's been to heaven can know the way out. He is the only one. I know the way out of the darkness of ignorance. I know the way out of darkness of sadness. I know the darkness of sin. I know the darkness of sorrow. I know the darkness of death. And only I know the way out. He became a light to the world. But then He was crucified. The light went out. You say, oh man, the light of the world's in heaven now. Too bad. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It says, You. Now that's not the animal. The you. You know, a popular animal. You know what it means in the Greek? Everybody here that calls himself a Christian. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What city do you think they're talking about? Tabernacles. They're talking about this city that is glowing and the whole world can see nothing but this city elevated on a hill that's full of light, but it can only last eight days. But Jesus said, whoever has my light will never burn out. And then he dies and Satan says, I win. And God says, "Uh, no, the light of the world is in my people now. And how many have ever heard of thermal imaging? Pretty, pretty awesome, really. You're on a police chase. And the uh, person they're chasing jumps out of the car and runs through the woods. They have thermal imaging now. They can watch him running through the woods because of the heat in his body. I wish they had an ability to do spiritual thermal imaging. Because Jerusalem was full of these lamps. They were on fire for God. They were burning bright. They were dying for their faith. Nothing could stop them. They were a lamp that was burning. But let's turn on our thermal imaging. Satan's always trying to extinguish the light. So if you could see the thermal imaging, you would see persecution hits Jerusalem. Well, where's all the light go? You could see extinguish. I killed them, killed them, killed them, killed them. And the next thing you see... Thermal imaging is that light is on every continent of the world. It spreads and it grows and it, and this light is everywhere. And you say, well, man, what good does light do? Do you know almost every good thing we do needs good lighting? If you want to have healing physically, how many of you know that lighting in the surgery room is pretty important? If you walked in and it was just a little cord with a little bulb on it, and, you know, maybe it flickered a little, maybe it worked sometimes, maybe it didn't. You would say, oh, no, I'm not feeling good about this surgery. How I many know they've got a lot of expensive lighting in there? Because they need to see precisely what they're doing. 
And that's why God has put us in the world. You know, everything you do, no matter what the work is, the more important the work, the better the lighting. Right? You know that. Lighting's important, like this beautiful yellow lighting in here. <laughs> but we're called to be the light of the world. In fact, he's telling us, how many of you know when you have a light, you try to elevate that light? You don't hide it. You don't put it in an obscure place. You don't put it under the seat. You elevate it. You look for a high place to put it. When they had a lamp, they looked for a place to put it. And here's what God's telling us today. He's telling us that we have been invested. Remember it said, um, He that trusts in Me um, will never walk in darkness and He possesses the light of life. And so what God is doing is, if you looked at the thermal imaging, God is taking your light and He's putting it in your family at Christmas. You say, oh no, I didn't know that. He's putting it there. Because just like Jesus, nobody knows the way to God. They don't know how to get there. They're in darkness. But He's saying that we will never walk in darkness. That we will reveal God. That we will reveal sin. We will reveal all these important things. We will reveal eternity. We're, we're, do you see this great city, Jerusalem, lit up with lights? We are that city. We are a heavenly Jerusalem that's going to come out of heaven and manifest itself on the earth one day. But right now, those lights are all over the earth revealing who God is. And church, we better start taking it serious. We better start getting in the presence of God. We better stay full of His Spirit. We better trim that wick and put plenty of material there to burn bright for Jesus Christ because we're going to lose some people that you love if we don't. Hallelujah. And that includes myself. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come before You, Lord. Holy Spirit, right now I just pray that You would walk these aisles, do the work that You do, convict hearts, draw hearts. You're going to move right now. Hallelujah. I just want to ask You right now, is that light burning in your heart. In fact, one thing in this story that's really interesting is Jesus begins to reveal Himself as the Messiah and the Pharisees are very angry and they're saying, hey, is any of the Pharisees here believing in this guy? And Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus is the one that went by night inquiring about Him and actually probably did believe. He was saying, hey, give Him a chance, let Him talk. I just want to ask you today, is the light burning inside of you? Because Nicodemus was trying to make that choice. Trying to decide. He said, Nicodemus, the only way you can be right with God, the only way you can have that light is to be born again. And I remember the moment that light lit my heart. It's when I said, God, I trust you. And I give you my life no matter what anybody says, no matter who laughs, no matter who I lose in my life. 
Lord, I'm going to serve you with all of my heart and I'm never turning back. And you know what? God flickered a flame in my heart and every day he's been burning brighter and brighter and brighter. I've never walked a day in darkness since that day. How many know that to be true? Praise God. And if you're here this morning and that light is not burning in you, the light of life is not within you, there's no way to find heaven unless that's burning inside of you, a burning desire to serve God. God wants it to burn bright. God wants the not just for you to be saved. God wants your whole community to see that light. God wants your family to see that light. God wants people at work to see that light. So my first call is, if you don't have that light in your life, all God asks is accept Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. And that light will begin to burn. The second one is, man, Chad, I'm serving the Lord, but I just have a flicker of light. God says, just begin to call out. He says, anybody who comes to me, that means physically I'm coming to you and I'm thirsty. He said, you will never thirst again. I won't turn anybody away, he said, if you come to me thirsty. God's asking this morning, find a place at this altar. He said, man, I don't know. I'd really like to go to a restaurant and eat. You'll be hungry again. Man, find a place. This is, if you can't dig in and worship God Christmas, our only thing that we set aside as a national holiday and serve the Lord. I mean, they were staying eight days camping. Sometimes we can't go to the mall for worship. Think about it. We got to get back to our roots, church. We got to get hungry for God again. We got to get full of God again. We got to love to worship God and not look at it as a task. worship team is here for you to draw closer to God. Don't turn around this one. Worship God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Father, anoint these offer, this altar, Lord God. Father, those who are struggling, Lord God, those who have anxiety, fear, Lord God, those who are sick, Lord, Father, those who are struggling, let them come close, Lord God. Come close to you, Lord God. Father, I pray that they would be filled with your spirit. Father, a hunger for you would be kindled again, Lord God, that they would go back, as you said all morning, Lord God, to the first things, Lord. They would go back to the first things this morning.
His glory surrounds us. His glory fills our heart. We walk on those streets. You say, well, man, praise the Lord, one day I will. Now you do. Sometimes when I get out of my prayer time, I feel like I'm wealthy. Sometimes it dawns on me that I don't have any money. How many know what I'm talking about? Sometimes I feel like I'm the richest man in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm... You ever been so excited like the days finally came I've been waiting for for a long time? I guess this is going to happen. Sometimes I get out of prayer and I can't wait for the day to start and I don't know why. It's just God is filled with joy. God has filled me with riches because my prayer life raptures me into His presence. When I get out of my prayer life, I don't have any problems. I don't have any anxiety. I don't have any worry. And sometimes your prayer life, God's showing me this morning, sometimes your prayer lives keep you in this world. And your your whole prayer time is, God, I've got this problem. God, I've got that problem. God, I've got this problem. And you stay in this present reality. And what God's saying is be transformed in my presence. Be a citizen of this world to come. Think about all the riches that you currently have. Think about what's waiting for you. Walk with a different step. Talk with a di- in a different way. Believe and hope in a different way. And God's saying you need your prayer life. You used to think, man, it's okay. Prayer life is okay if I have it or if I don't have it. It's not necessary. But God's telling you this morning it's necessary. Because I need to transform you from glory to glory. Because the current glory is not enough. Your your hopes are in a world that's wasting away. And God wants you to walk through this world with hope and joy and peace. And you say, well, man, when I get that promotion, I will. When I make a little bit of money, I will. When I get a nicer house, I will. When I get a car, I will. God's saying, no, now. Now it's time that the joy of the Lord is currently your strength. The hope of the Lord is what gives you confidence in this world. Hallelujah. God's trying to pull that weight of depression off of your ankle. You're, you're going into a deep ocean and God's saying, pull it off. You've got a bright future. And all Satan is showing you is a bleak future. God's saying, I need to transform your thinking. Church, this is a bonus material. Holy Spirit handed that to me and said, give it to me. Man, I just want to go eat. I'll receive it. Receive it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, take this church deeper, Lord. Lord, let them experience your presence, your power, your glory. Lord, let them experience the power of the world to come. Transform hearts, Lord God. Take them from depression to optimism. Anxiety, Lord God, to confidence in you. Oh, Lord God, let them experience what it means to know you, Lord. And to be loved by you, Lord. And to be held by you, Lord. Lord, bless your people, Lord. Draw them closer and closer to you, Lord. In your name I pray.
everybody said.